Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right. Welcome back as uh, we continue to cover the breaking news at this hour with this key court judgment by the B.C. Supreme Court in the Meng Wanzhou case. Of course, she is the chief financial officer for Chinese uh, tech giant Huawei. She was arrested in Vancouver way back in December of 2018, was facing possible extradition uh, to the United States. They want her uh, extradited to there to face criminal charges there. She has been fighting that extradition ever since and has been under house arrest in Vancouver at her mansion in Vancouver where she wears an ankle bracelet to monitor her movements. This is a big day in this case today against this uh, crucial uh, this crucial case involving this Chinese tech executive. Her lawyers had been arguing that she should be released because the crimes that she was accused of in the United States would not be criminal behavior in Canada. This is the double criminality test. And if she had won this case today, it was very possible she could have walked free. That did not happen. Uh, the B.C. Supreme Court issuing a, a big blow here to her case today, uh, ruling that she must remain under house arrest as those extradition pre- proceedings against her will continue. Let's check in now with Jeremy Nuttall, the very fine reporter for the Star Vancouver's on this story today. Hey, Jeremy. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks a lot for doing this. What are your thoughts on this case here today? Was this a surprise? No, not really. I, I honestly, I remember when reading about this, uh, when it was first uh, put forward to court and looking at the arguments and thinking that uh, there was no way that they would they would be successful. Um, because at the heart of this is not that why Meng Wanzhou uh, allegedly uh, told uh, misinformation to the HSBC Bank. It's the fact that she did. Their arguments uh, seem to be dependent on, uh, you know, the U.S. sanctions in Iran not being uh, similar, uh, not having su- such sanctions imposed here in Canada. But, I mean, that's, right. that really doesn't uh, address the issue, which was that she allegedly gave false information to the bank. Um, so, I, you know, I wasn't very surprised to, to see this result today. Yeah, she was um, charged with bank and wire fraud, mm-hmm. conspiracy to commit bank bank and wire fraud in relation to trying to get around these American sanctions on Iran, and that's why the Americans want her extradited to face charges there. The Americans allege that she lied to banks about Huawei's relationship with a, another, a subsidiary in Iran, a company called Skycom, in order to get banking services. So that's what the case boils down to. And I guess her lawyers were trying to argue that, well, that would not be a crime in Canada. It did seem like kind of a a hail mary shot here to to get her to get her out of jail. Where does or at least out of house arrest, Jeremy? Where does this go now? I mean, obviously, that means the the extradition proceedings will continue against her. Correct? Yeah, extradition proceedings continue, and then once those are wrapped up and there's a decision made, people uh, forget that the ultimate uh, uh, decision on this it does wind down uh, to the Attorney General of Canada. Uh, David Lametti, who can make the call at the end of the day. Um, usually they just go with whatever uh, the judge has decided, but they do have to approve it. 
Um, so yeah, now we just see it wind through the extradition process, which could, which could take a couple of years, if not yeah. more. Um, and yeah, it's going to be uh, more of the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this thing has dragged on since uh, late uh, 2018, and it looks like it could drag on even further. This all comes at a time of uh, difficult relations between Canada and the United and and China. With this decision today, Jeremy, what do you think the reaction of, of the Chinese government will be? They were obviously hope, wanted her released today, and that's not happening. I'm sure that we can expect some threats and further attempts to intimidate Canadian lawmakers uh, into uh, releasing her. But uh, they've tried this before. They've tried it with uh, their arbitrary arrests of uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver. Yes. Um, and it, it's actually kind of uh, comforting to know that the Canadian justice system hasn't uh, hasn't uh, buckled to that kind of pressure. Right. That's something about Justin Trudeau had doubled down on yesterday, saying that we've got an independent justice system, d- despite what uh, the Chinese government might allege that, somehow alleging that the government was directing the judge in this case. Uh, Trudeau insisting yesterday that's that's not the case. This is an independent system. We've got an independent judiciary, and that system, that decisions will be made free of political influence from the government. But you got to figure that uh, Chinese authorities will be furious today at the fact that this this Czech executive is remaining under under house arrest and is not walking walking free today. What do you think it means for the two Michaels? You mentioned Michael Covid and Michael Spavor. Was, a lot yeah. of people a lot of people looked at that as retaliatory action by the Chinese to detain those two Canadian citizens in China. I guess it means that they were going to they'll be remained locked up for the foreseeable future too. Yeah, there's there's a few schools of thought on this, and it's hard to know which to believe. Some people tell me that, uh, some international observers, I should say, that I speak to regularly on this matter, uh, think that they might give up. They might see that this entire approach of uh, detaining those two men isn't working and release them. Um, or, yeah, they, it could mean that they keep them locked up for uh, God knows how long. Um, there is the matter of uh, a, six months, uh, a six-month deadline to charge them coming up. Um, the police have them in custody, and if they don't charge them, they have to throw them back to, I believe, the uh, Department of Justice, though I'm not 100% sure if that's the name off the top of my head, sorry. Um, so we could just sort of see them go back and forth uh, in limbo between these two uh, Chinese government agencies uh, for years. Or, as I said, it could be a situation where they say, okay, this isn't working, let them go and try some kind of other uh, you know, uh, course. Right, a real setback for Meng Wanzhou and her legal team today as she remains under house arrest in Vancouver. This was a, a hotly anticipated and a groundbreaking decision today from the B.C. Supreme Court and Associate Chief Justice Heather Holmes, a 23-page decision uh, that keeps this 48-year-old tech executive under house arrest in, in Vancouver. I guess the what will be the reaction of the uh, the American authorities on this now? Do you think they will ratchet up the pressure on Canada and say, look, okay, She's fought to to be free. She lost today. Turn her over. We want her. We want her here in the United States to face charges. But that this could drag on for a long time before that happens. Yeah, I think you know the Americans have been pretty good about staying out of. The, I mean, you know, they come from a, a democratic system and a rule of law based society as well. So I think they've been fairly good about staying out of this and let Canadian uh, the Canadian system take its course. Uh, so I, I don't imagine any uh, public uh, pressure from from them to quickly extradite uh, Mung at all. Okay, does, does she now just remain under house arrest in her in her Vancouver home, or is there any chance that she gets transferred out of there into a jail cell? No, it appears that for now, I mean, she will just remain under house arrest because the application 
was to basically dismiss the extradition proceedings, and all of those uh, all of those stipulations were placed on her before she even made that application. So I imagine nothing changes for her on that front. Okay, we saw a lot of uh, protests down in front of the courthouse today. We saw protests from people saying that she should be extradited to the United States. Sometimes we see protesters show up in her in her defense as well. It's almost like Canada's stuck in the middle on this thing. We're almost in like a, a lose-lose situation. I mean, this decision today is going to anger the Chinese government. On the other hand, if she had walked free today, the Americans would have been upset. So it's almost like Canada's stuck in the middle here, and it's going to be a lose-lose situation. Um, I mean, in, in certain ways, yes. Uh, I, I tend to look at this more as a situation where uh, the Communist Party, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is trying to uh, basically get the Western world to to bow to the way they want things done. And Canada is just sort of the beachhead where that's taking place. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you could call it a lose-lose situation, but I, I really yeah. don't know that if, if she had uh, uh, won her case today, that the Americans would, would have any kind of a uh, retaliatory measures placed against Canada, being as, you know, they understand that uh, how a justice system in a, uh, a liberalized democracy works. Right. Although, is, is Canada now in any kind of jeopardy of retaliatory action from the Chinese government now that this court judgment has gone against gone oh, against them? What, what could yeah. potentially happen? The, the, the rhetoric coming from China in the last few days against Canada over this case has been quite intense. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that we'll see more trade sanctions. Um, you could probably see them trying uh, to apply more pressure through mask diplomacy, i.e. trying to prevent any uh, um, exports of uh, personal protective equipment to Canada during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, they could arrest more Canadians who are in Beijing or elsewhere around China. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a range of things that could happen. And in the past, we have seen them try to apply uh, trade sanctions uh, specifically uh, when trying to uh, bully Canada into doing something. Jeremy, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. We're going to kick it off with that shocking report released yesterday on the condition of long-term care homes in Ontario. And you can bet there are problems in long-term care homes right across the country. But I'll tell you what, this report that came out from the Canadian military yesterday was absolutely shocking reading here. Cockroach infestations. Residents left to wallow in soiled diapers. Patients who had tested positive for COVID-19 allowed to wander around these care homes. The force feeding of the, of the, of the elderly. A culture of fear in these care homes, people afraid to use supplies because they cost money. This is a shocking report, to say the least, that came out yesterday, and it's sparking widespread calls for reform of long-term care homes. Have a listen to this. Here's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday. On reading the deeply disturbing report, I had obviously a range of emotions of uh, anger, of sadness, of of frustration, um, of grief. Um, it is extremely troubling, uh, and uh, as I've said from the very beginning of this, uh, we need to do a better job of supporting our seniors in long-term care uh, right across the country through this pandemic and beyond. All right, Trudeau speaking yesterday. Let's talk to my guest now, Mark Hancock. He is the national president of the Canadian Union of Public Employees, one of the biggest public sector unions in the country. Organized labor calling for major reforms of long-term care homes in our country today. Mark, thank you for coming on. 
Thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me on. Nice. I appreciate it a lot. What did you think when you looked at that report? Well, you know, uh, the report is, uh, is is something. It's uh, um, you know, it's not. It's shining, I guess, specific lights on on things that we've known about and been talking about for years. Um, yeah. You know, long term care has been broken, and you know, for for decades. And uh, the report itself is is pretty damning. You know, I'm 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 a really proud Canadian. I'm I'm proud to be. Uh, in this country, I'm proud of our healthcare system. I'm proud of so many things, but uh, quite frankly, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed of how we're treating our our seniors and and other folks in in care. It's uh, it's shocking. Yeah, it really is. And like you said, we've been talking about this for a long time. We've known that there have been problems in these care homes for many years, like you said. But apparently, it's taken this report from the Canadian military to perhaps be a tipping point. Do you think this is kind of a crucial juncture with the release of this report now and in terms of the potential long, uh, long-term long kind of reform of these homes? Well, I sure as hell hope so. You know, we have uh, we have 700,000 members across the country and 65,000 of those work in, in long-term care homes. Uh, they've been working on the front lines in these homes and, of course, uh, their, their roles have really stepped up during this crisis. And, you know, COVID-19 has really shone a, a bright light on the problems in long-term care, but they've, and they've also made them worse, but it's it's important to understand these problems existed long before this pandemic. Uh, you know, right. we've known that our, we have a patchwork system, no national standards. We know the system is underfunded. We know it's understaffed. And we know that there are too many private operators, really, that are focused on, on making a profit instead of uh, providing care to those folks in those homes. It's time to fix long-term. It's long past time to fix long-term care. Okay, I want to ask you about the plan here to do that, but let me ask you about accountability in this case. I mean, when you read this shocking, these shocking uh, report on neglect of frail seniors in the, in the system, do you think there should be, what should happen immediately? Should there be an investigation? Should there be a criminal a probe? Should there be criminal charges here? What do you think should happen now? Well, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, everybody's got, I mean, no, that's just a few homes, right? I mean, that, yeah. this, is, this, is a, this is a small sampling. And, you know, I, I want to, you know, this is, this is, I don't want to focus that, and remind people, this is not the fault of, of the staff in those homes. And I'm not talking about my members. I'm talking about staff in these homes. There is, and it's right in that report, there is this element of fear that is huge, especially in this sector. Uh, you know, people being afraid to ask for PPEs because of the cost factor. Uh, PPEs being locked up and not available to those staff. Um, you know, when, when, when profit is, is, is the main motive for some of these homes, that's a real problem. And, uh, you know, those, those folks that belong to a union at least have that type of safeguard. But if you don't belong to a union, you're taking a huge risk if you, if you, uh, you know, raise these concerns publicly or otherwise. Speaking of Mark Hancock, he's the national president of CUPE, the Canadian Union of Public Employees. This is a report that looked at a few care homes in Ontario, as you mentioned. But in your experience as, as a national labor leader, are, are these problems evident and in place all across the country? Like, I know you're based in Vancouver, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm in Coquitlam, actually. Yeah, yeah. My, I mean, my office are, is in Ottawa, so I have a long commute, but I'm in Coquitlam right now during this, uh, this pandemic. Right. I mean, what about in British Columbia? Do you hear similar stories of care homes uh, having problems like this in British Columbia? Yeah, but I, I mean, I do have to say that, uh, you know, the Horgan government has actually really stepped up. They stepped up really quickly. Uh, they, they put an end to uh, health care, these workers going from, from one jurisdiction to another. Uh, yeah. They bumped up the pay for those workers so that, you know, by, by having to lose one or two jobs, because that's real, that's, you know, that's really prevalent in this industry is, is workers uh, being part-time or casual and having to work two or three or four jobs even sometimes. And, you know, that's just the, the perfect way for this virus or any virus 
to spread from one home to another home. And, right. You know, and workers are dying uh, as a result of this as well. And I mean, there's the numbers are, are staggering uh, around the you know folks that have passed away uh, this country. Was it over six thousand deaths in Canada? Uh, we we see that eighty percent of those are in long term care homes. Right. I mean, those are our parents. Those are our grandparents. Those are people that we care and love. I mean, I, I have a friend that lost a, a father in, in Vancouver at one of the homes. Um, you know, the, it's 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 a, such a tragic personal uh, story. And and there's workers. We've lost five members uh, across this country directly due to COVID nineteen. So it's not just uh, elderly people with uh, pre existing conditions. This is this is this is having a huge impact on on our country and. And and, what, and and how we how we exist, it's it's really you know I'm really emotional about this. Right. What should be done about it now? Like I know that organized labor in Canada is mobilizing here, and they're calling for what the nationalization of these care homes. You guys want the, what the government to take them all over? Well, not no, not exactly. What we're saying is that it shouldn't be you know it shouldn't be any different than going to a hospital. You know, there should be the same regulations. There should be national standards and national funding provided to, uh, in long term care. You know, we need to recognize the workers who are caring for our family members. And uh, when we can't do it anymore, we probably most importantly, we need to take profit from the system. You know, how, how, how dare we allow companies to, to, to make money on the backs of, of, our, of our seniors and those people that need care? And then, you know, all of a sudden we're cutting corners. You know, I heard, I've, heard, I've heard lots of stories during this pandemic uh, from our workers across this country. In Saskatchewan, they didn't have paper towels or, or um, alcohol, uh, you know, for, uh, for, for treating things. I mean, the stories are, are just blowing my mind, Michael. Mark, thank you for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Anytime, Michael. Okay. Take care. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about the return to action for the NHL now. Yesterday, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman announcing the puck will drop in July. Here he is. The 2019-20 regular season has been deemed to be completed. We will resume play and conduct the 2020 Stanley Cup playoffs in two hub cities that will be identified and announced at a later date. One will be the site for the resuming Eastern Conference clubs. The other will play host to the resuming Western Conference clubs. Each will have secure arenas, practice facilities, hotels, and local transportation for our players, coaches, and essential staff. Okay, Gary Bettman, the NHL commissioner yesterday, saying they're going to award Stanley's Cup there. The old mug will be awarded this year. He says they're getting set to go back into action with a 2014 playoff format. Two hub cities. You heard him say there, two hub cities. Will Vancouver be one of those hub cities? Let's check in with Rob Williams now, the sports editor for the Daily Hive. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Rob. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. What do you think about uh, dropping the puck in July? Do you think this is really going to happen, or is are there problems and barriers with uh, that could prevent it? I mean, there's there's potential barriers that could prevent it, but I I um uh, you know I'm optimistic that this is going to go through. I think it would take. Um, I think it would take an outbreak, uh, either something completely unforeseen in Canada or the United States, uh, like a, a major second wave, like something way worse than we've than we've already seen, or uh, an outbreak within the within teams. Like if an entire team or half a team uh, got the virus, then then that could uh, trip things up. But other than that, um, yeah, I'm getting excited. This is this is uh, yeah. fun to talk hockey and that, like <laughs> like actual tangible things now again. 
I think it's exciting too. I love it, and uh, I'm just pretty much kind of a casual fan. But I'll watch this for sure if it happens. How is this going to work, Rob? With the information that was released by the league yesterday, how do they keep these players and officials safe? Are these guys going to be like in some kind of biodome or bubble that they're not allowed to go out in public? They just go to straight to the rink and then back to their hotel, and that they're not allowed to mingle with anybody else. Is that how it's going to work? Yeah, I mean, there's still details to, to be ironed out, but essentially, uh, yeah, players will be living in hotels. Uh, Gary Bettman said as much. Uh, even if for a team, even if the you know, even if Vancouver was a hub city, Canucks players would not be going to their homes in, in all around the city. They would be going back to the hotel just like the visiting teams would. So, uh, yeah, I think there's definitely going to be an element of of, uh, of a bubble. Um, it just depends on you know. I, I it remains to be seen how tight that bubble is going to be like can, yeah. can can a player can a player walk on the seawall if he wants to <laughs> you know or or you know certainly they're not going to Costco or anything like that right i wonder if there is an outbreak like you said we're talking about hundreds of players officials tv crews that will be in this bubble what happens if there if one guy get sick. Bettman was asked that yesterday. What if there's one positive case? Does that derail the whole thing? And he said, he said, no. He said, you know, if you get one positive case, you would remove that positive person and, and you'd carry on. But I wonder what happens if there's more than one, if there's multiple positives, does that, does that upset the whole plan? Yeah. Like I say, I think, I think it would have to be a really serious outbreak yeah. uh, to, to, to really, cause major problems in terms of like actually delaying things or canceling games or uh, postponing things. I, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, everyone's still trying to figure this out as well. I I, I think that the main thing is that they need to prevent uh, any kind of a large scale outbreak. So the, the talk right now is that they would test players every evening and have the test results by the next morning. Uh, you know, so right. things like that uh, to to really make sure that they keep an eye on on the health of all of their players is going to be a paramount importance. Right, but the system that Bettman described yesterday, you're talking thousands of tests potentially because you'd be testing everybody every day and searching for any kind of positives. And if someone is positive, they're obviously kicked out of the bu- bubble and potentially you carry on with the playoffs and award the Stanley Cup at the end of it. So we'll see how this goes. Now, what about Vancouver, Rob? What's going on here? Because BC Premier John Horgan was gung-ho to get uh, games being played in Vancouver. It looks like that might not happen now. What's happening? Yeah, I mean, it, essentially, uh, Gary Bettman and Bill Daly, um, the NHL commissioner and deputy commissioner, um, they basically said that that if the 14 quarantine is a non-negotiable uh, for coming into Canada that they will play games in the United States. Uh, so yeah. right now they're working with the Canadian government um, and trying to come up with another resolution. They're, they're careful in how they're wording things because they, they definitely don't want to be seen as, um, you know, trying to be uh, doing anything that's unsafe for the population. But, you know, perhaps uh, the, the, they're probably looking for a, uh, a different definition of a, of a 14 quarantine, 14 day quarantine. So if right. if NHL teams essentially had <laughs> had their players in their own in their own bubble uh, at their own facility in the United States, uh, could they then fly in on a private jet and take their players to you know the bubble in in Hub City 
uh, in Canada and and that be allowed without having to have that 14-day quarantine. Right, right, because the rule right now is if you enter Canada, you must self-quarantine for 14 days. And I guess the question is, could that be done outside of the country while they go into kind of a mini training camp here? If they're in a bubble in the United States while they train, would that satisfy Canada's requirement for a 14-day quarantine? And I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if that happens. But this has got to be disappointing for the NHL because I think they really wanted to come to Canada. I mean, isn't there an economic advantage to coming here and playing the games here with the, with the cheaper dollar? Yeah, potentially. I mean, depending on what what deals, I don't know what deals Las Vegas is trying to cut <laughs> to get them into their big empty hotels. Uh, right. But yeah, all things being equal, um, you know, the the cheaper Canadian dollar um, would help things out, and and every dollar counts right now, of course. Right. I think it's going to be Las Vegas and potential and uh, uh, one other city. It's it sounds like. Now let's talk about the Canucks, Rob. So the Canucks are in the playoffs, right? Sort of. they are they are technically in the qualifying round uh and they will play a five game series with minnesota and that was one of the fun things about (laughs) yesterday's uh announcement the qualifying round right now is neither regular season and it's and it's not playoffs either so it's some new uh some new thing that we're we're just learning about Okay, it's a play-in, maybe a play-in to get into the playoffs. Okay, so it'd be Vancouver versus the Minnesota Wild in a five-game series. What are your thoughts on that matchup? Yeah, I quite like the matchup for Vancouver, actually. I, I think that one of the, the the big advantages the Canucks are going to have, and I, I, I'm pretty bullish on them. I think they could go on, on, a, on a bit of a run here and wow. surprise some teams. Uh, and the reason I say that is I think that young players are going to have an advantage when, when things uh, start up again, because it's going to be, uh, you know, you can have all the training camps and, and, and whatnot that you, that you want, but, you know, players have been, by and large, have been off the ice for, for months now. And I think younger players are going to have an easier time adjusting and bouncing back uh, than, than these older players. And the, the Minnesota Wild, most of their top players – are into their 30s, uh, whereas the Canucks, the Canucks have a, a lot of older players as well, but their top players are all in that mid to early 20s. Uh, so I think, and, and also Swedish players are going to have an advantage. We know how, how Swedish the Canucks are uh, because they haven't uh, closed down ice rinks in Sweden. So Jacob Markstrom has all his gear. He's going on the ice, and Elias Pettersson presumably is doing the same. The Canucks got a hot goalie too, right? That's right. In Minnesota, Minnesota, that's one of their, their question marks right now. Uh, Devin Dubnik has been a, a, a very good goalie in, for the last number of years, but he's having a poor season. And their backup, Alex Stalock, is has been their number one goalie this season. And Alex Stalock is a career backup in the NHL. So I think that's another potential weak spot uh, for the Wild. All right, welcome back. Keeping a very close eye on the downtown uh, BC Supreme Court courthouse right now. A big crowd outside there. There's lots of protesters. There's lots of media down there as they anxiously await that court uh, judgment and decision in the Meng Wanzhou case. So could she go free today? The Huawei tech executive, of course, has been under house arrest for many months. She is facing possible extradition to the United States. The Americans want to try her on crimes uh, down there. She is fighting uh, to go free crucial court decision coming down we expect here probably at the top of the hour 
uh, we will have confirmation of what's happening there. And uh, you know what? Like Keith Baldry said earlier, it kind of a lose-lose situation for Canada. If she walks today, the Americans obviously will be very unhappy and upset. If she remains under house arrest, the Chinese government will be angry as well. So make sure you keep it locked right here for the latest developments on that Meng Wanzhou case crucial day in that saga today let's talk about speed on our streets traffic enforcement speed enforcement red light uh, speed cameras at intersections so much to talk about this including the introduction of slow streets in the city of vancouver other cities thinking about doing this as well so the city of vancouver has announced a plan to install 50 kilometers of slow streets in Vancouver, expand patios for restaurants, uh, also possibly put in some barriers to slow traffic down on these streets. Slow streets, what do you think about that idea? Let's check in with Derek Lures now. He's a speed limit researcher with the group SenseBC. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, Derek. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. Slow streets. Slow streets in the city of Vancouver. What do you think? Well, I think that what we're seeing here is Division Zero uh, folks, those those folks that like to exercise the war on the car, uh, taking advantage of the citizens, the emergency powers, the rules that are uh, being tossed out the window for democracies, and just moving their agendas forward at any chance they can to uh, get cars off the road and put their active streets uh, communications uh, policy in place. Okay, well, the city says, look, we're in a pandemic. There are fewer cars on the road anyway, and people are looking to get outside and get back to some sort of sense of normalcy with some measure of safety. So why not some more outdoor patios, outdoor restaurant spaces here? And if we can expand that onto some roadways in the city of Vancouver and slow down the traffic on those cities to keep people safe at the same time, maybe that would be a good thing. But I wonder if you think that this could be the thin edge of the wedge and maybe what's considered kind of a, a measure they bring in during a pandemic is uh, remains oh, oh, ab- remains ab- permanent. It's, yeah, absolutely. I believe it's uh, the thin edge of the wedge. And, you know, that the CBC report that uh, covered this topic, the city planner said that this was a great time to see if this is going to work. And they've said it's temporary, but if it works for them uh, in their eyes, whatever that means, whatever benchmarks they're using, it could be permanent. And, you know, I, I, it makes sense to have some space for uh, patios and restaurants. Uh, restaurants are having a heck of a time during this uh, pandemic and trying to make ends meet. Um, but I'll, just keep in mind that a lot of that stuff is really going to be temporary. It's seasonal as far as the that temporary goes. Uh, we're not going to have outdoor patios in the middle of winter uh, in a Vancouver yeah. rainstorm. So, you know, what is the cost-benefit of this? Um, you know, the good doctor, uh, Dr. Henry, has made it very clear that the chances of uh, catching COVID outdoors and transmission while walking past somebody is infinitesimal. So the excuses that's being used by the city is saying this is making it uh, safer for pedestrians to use the streets is just not something I can buy into. Okay, the city says they want to repurpose parking spaces and travel lanes on roads to allow things like expanded restaurant patios and that kind of thing, turn selected residential streets into these slow streets that would allow only local traffic and create space for more pedestrians and, of course, bicycle traffic. Do you think this is the city of Vancouver saying, here's the opportunity here to expand bike lanes? Do you think that's what's going on? 
yeah, exactly. As I said, Mike, the, the Vision Zero folks are... What is that, by the way? Vision Zero, what is that for people who don't Vision know? Vision Zero is an ideology movement that came out of Sweden uh, with the goal of having zero traffic fatalities. Uh, and, that, and they're a very, very powerful lobby organization that has uh, inserted themselves through planners and other areas getting into municipal governments. Uh, and that ideology has moved forward, and they want... They combine it, and it's mostly, if you look at profiles of people who advocate for this stuff, it's mostly avid, um, diehard cyclists that want to turn cities into walking, biking places and no place for the cars. And that's kind of where this term, the war on the car, comes. Uh, They don't see a place for cars in cities, and this is how they move their agenda forward. Derek, you're with a, a watchdog group that closely monitors speed limits and speed enforcement in British Columbia. What is how is that going? Uh, how, how has that been impacted during this COVID nineteen pandemic? We hear from the police that there are fewer people on the roads, but maybe more people are speeding. They've got less traffic on on the road, so maybe it's an opportunity to put their foot down and increase their speed. Police have also talked about increased speed enforcement during this pandemic. What are you hearing? What's going on? Well, definitely see a lot of that. Um, you know, I don't know what the official measure is that's coming down, maybe from the Solicitor General's office uh, with regards to policing. I, my personal observations anecdotally were that in the first couple of weeks of this beginning of this pandemic, that police were existence was non-existent on the roads. Uh, I think that I'm probably not the only one that made that observation, and people started to perhaps take advantage of that situation, and they had to find. Uh, you know, the police presence gives people a sense of security, gives them a sense of purpose, and makes them feel feel safer. So I think there might have been a directive to get them back on the roads. But keeping in mind that speed limits, or one of the primary reasons that speed limits are set or how they're set by engineers, is at the 85th percentile, which traffic goes on any given roadway. And so the speed limits that are on in place now, that we argue many of them are not set uh, at the 85th percentile, and then on the low side, that they're set with the traffic volumes that were there on a normal given day. And now you've got this pandemic situation where even by the city of Vancouver's account, traffic, uh, car traffic's down by up to 42%. Uh, you've got less uh, chances of cars on the road. Therefore, people are naturally going to drive at a higher rate of speed generally. And so those limits start to, those artificial limits in the people's minds start to creep up. So, you know, I say fix the limits first and then let's worry about the enforcement. Speaking of Derek Lewers from SenseBC, he's a researcher there. What about the uh, speed intersection cameras? Now, Derek, we've talked about this before. There are 35 intersections in BC now equipped with these automatic speed cameras that are ticketing speeding drivers 24 hours a day. Uh, the police are always quick to point out if they catch someone really going fast, if they nab a lab- Lamborghini or something speeding through an intersection, that gets a lot of attention. But how many of these tickets are, are going out the door, and do you think it's, do you think these speed cameras are fair? Well, I, I think I'm on the record before, Mike, because you know, our organization is not in, for- in favor of automated enforcement. Um, you know, As much as I've just said that uh, I think police resources are not adequately being used during the pandemic on speed enforcement, because uh, limits, uh, people are driving quicker in a natural fashion and in a safe fashion because we've had very few uh, crashes on the roads, is that the, the cameras don't actually stop the behavior. You don't get to ticket the driver. You ticket a car. It's a fine. You're not getting that police interaction, which we actually favor that education component that comes with, and the, not just the education, but that interaction with the officer, being pulled over by an officer, having that discussion, 
there's much more value in that person-to-person contact than an automated enforcement system. Okay, do you think what, what do you think is the public attitude on this? I mean, ICBC and the cops are very quick to point to opinion polls that say that most people say, hey, listen, if you're speeding through an intersection, you deserve to get slammed with, with a, a big ticket. So we support these uh, speed intersection cameras. Do you think that's true? Do you think most British Columbians are in favor of it? I think most British Columbians are in favor of it because they don't understand the laws and they don't understand the truth behind what is actually happening at intersections. Kind of similar to distracted driving laws uh, around cell phones. You know, everybody thinks it's great. Hey, we've got to stop these people from texting on the phone while they're driving until you start realizing, and these news stories come across your desk and other media outlets about people being ticketed for the phone being on their lap or plugging it in their charger or sitting in a cup holder. And people didn't understand what the law meant. We understood. Uh, we put out the warning signs right from the beginning. Uh, but people didn't know that and didn't pay attention until it starts to impact them. Once people start to understand that the majority of the crashes aren't at these intersections aren't from speed and that they're not the, the number one causes of crashes at these intersections, no. then maybe people might change, start changing their mind. But the government's very good at throwing those those little carrots out there and just saying, oh yeah, you know, we've said this is, this is the way it's going to be and trust us, we're going to save your life. And it's not true. The stats aren't there. All right. Welcome back. Talking pandemic speed enforcement right now with my guest, Derek Lures, the city of Vancouver designating 50 kilometers for slow streets in the city, increased anti-speed enforcement by the police on our highways. Also those speeding intersection cameras all on the agenda. 604 280 is the number to call. Star 9898 toll free on your cell. Let's go right to your phone calls. Dan calling from Carisdale. Hiya, Dan. Hi there. Hi, go ahead. Um, I'm getting pretty tired of the so-called speeders getting all the bad rap. Why do people, a lot of people speed? Because of these dawdlers, because of these uh, frightened, timid drivers. And the lack of awareness is just astounding, especially cruising in the left lane. And I think there should be a ticket for those people as well. Okay, well, thank you for the call. Well, I guess it is technically illegal, Derek, to clog up the passing lane if you're sitting in a left lane. But do you think the police adequately enforce that? Uh, It it doesn't seem like that's their priority. Speeding seems to be their bigger priority. But uh, I I do agree with the caller, Dan, there with the timid drivers. I I do something that we do see out there a lot of. And, you know, since BC does definitely advocate for better driver ed- education, I think a, a timid or a scared driver is actually a very dangerous driver to have on the road, and we should uh, have better education. And, you know, I've, I've had meetings with the, the Premier, and I've, you know, called for him and the uh, education minister to in- implement uh, driver education in schools again and have it, you know, taught two or three times throughout the program so that every user of a road, whether they end up in a car or not, uh, is actually educated in the rules of the road and understands how the rules of the road apply to them. Back to the phone lines. Hi, Will in Maple Ridge. Uh, hi, Mike. Um, you know, this whole slow streets thing, um, yeah. I took a look at the map yesterday, and, and please don't tell me this is so that people can walk and bike. It's a main artery off of one, one of the only highway entrances here. It is the city continuing their war against cars. Don't let a crisis go to waste. We are just talking about the treatment of our seniors. Do you know why nobody cares about seniors? This is a perfect example. We don't care about their ability to get around and enjoy the city. Let's make sure the bikers can do it. 
Mm, okay, thanks for the call. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Bruce in Vancouver, hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I think it boils down to people uh, and the management of the government wanting to get their name behind some kind of legislation. Because, like, I'm drive- I've driven in Vancouver all my life as a professional driver and that. And nobody seems to be driving a whole lot faster uh, than ever, than I've ever noticed. And as far as being a pedestrian, which I also am, there's lots of room to walk around. And there's one other place where they've actually made it uh, more dangerous, and that's coming off the Lionsgate Bridge to get the Taylor Way. If you want to, if anybody wants to comment on that, I'd love to hear about that. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the call. I mean, Derek, do you think that there is more speeding going on during this pandemic? I mean, if the traffic is lighter, do people have more of a temptation to put their foot down and speed up? Yeah, again, it's only anecdotal evidence. You know, I'm on the roads every day. Um, I definitely say that people are more aware now of the police presence on the road. But like I said, when people perceive it to be safe, uh, there's less cars on the road. There's it's a natural human reaction to you've got wide open space to go a little bit faster. I, I don't I wouldn't be foolish to say that I don't think it is occurring. Star ninety eight ninety eight toll free on your cell. Robert calling in from Kelowna. Hi, Robert. Hi, I'm living in Kelowna, but I'm doing some traffic control in Vancouver. I'm actually in Surrey, and I'm right by one of the RCP detachments. Oh, yeah. And when I've had my workers out there, they've had to do some stuff by the side where the sidewalk's closed. You put the slow sign up, you even wave your hand down, slow down. People just wave at you and they speed up and they go and they'll sometimes give you the finger. So people, a lot of people speed and they shouldn't. And uh, look what happened in Surrey a couple of weeks ago. Somebody got hit and run and they took off. Yeah. Person Robert, got killed. Th- Robert, thank you for the call. Hope your people are safe out there. Let's go to Steve in Vancouver. Squeeze in one more call. Hi, Steve. Hey, how you doing? Good, go ahead. You know what? For generations and generations and generations, we've accommodated the car. It's driven our economy. It's uh, helped us grow our families. Um, we are we are pretty much hooked on car. In fact, we, we have houses that are specifically built with three-car garages for his car, her car, and the hobby car. Yeah. So... Yeah, you know, to accommodate bicycles, I think I think it's great. I think you know it, it's going to be um, you know the, the bike will dominate, but I I do both. I drive. In fact, I work for a car manufacturer, quite frankly, and uh, it just uh, it boggles my mind that. Okay. Uh, and I'm on a bike. I'm on a bike every day. Steve, thanks for calling in. What do you say to him, Derek? Well, I, I agree. I mean, the, the car's not going anywhere soon. Um, we've seen a dramatic drop in oil prices. Uh, you know, the electric car is kind of now not as attractive. Uh, you know, in the time of the COVID with this pandemic, you know, there's arguably no safer place than a car versus public transit. Um, and as long as this right. pandemic fears around, we're going to see a lot of people wanting to be in their cars. Uh, so I think we kind of have to accept that that's, that is one of the things that's going to stay. But, you know, there's an ideology out there that definitely has the war on the car. And, uh, you know, there's two sides to this story and people are taking those sides.